Hey there, this is Will Gadara, and welcome back. Today we have someone from outside of our industry. It's something we've been trying to focus on in this podcast is not only talking to people in the restaurant business, but hearing perspectives from those who do something different from what we do. It's always been a philosophy of ours that learning from people who have spent their lives pursuing other disciplines can be an unbelievable way to gain new perspective as we approach ours. It started for me a long time ago at 11 Madison Park. We got our first review in the New York Observer by Moira Hodgson. It was a great review, three and a half out of four stars. <laughs> Better than we deserved at the time, but at the very end, she, well, there was a line. It said, I wish this restaurant had a bit more Miles Davis. It came at an interesting time because we were trying to find language to articulate what we were trying to accomplish. We were looking for our mission statement. And in that line, Moira had given us a gift. So we spent a bunch of time researching Miles Davis, listening to his music, reading everything we could about his music. Not the music itself, but the approach he took to making it. And we came up with a list of 11 words, those that were most commonly used to describe it. Collaborative, fresh, light, innovative. See, in a jazz musician, we actually found the language we needed to evolve our fine dining restaurant. That continued. It continued when we studied big companies like Starbucks and Apple and Nordstrom's and tried to learn how they pursued their company culture. It continued when I went to see Rocky the Musical and left inspired to add a kitchen tour to the menu. It continued to the point when I went to see Mount Rushmore and was just so inspired by the audaciousness of the vision that ended up creating that place that I went back home and got the team together in pre-meal and said, we need to do bigger things. See, if we look at the world with our eyes wide open, or as my dad used to say on road trips, Will, keep your eyes peeled. It's unbelievable how we can find inspiration at every corner. Today's guest is the lead singer of one of my favorite bands, a band that's been together for 16 years. And the way that they pursue the culture of their group, well, I think that there's a lot we can all learn in how we approach the culture of the teams behind our restaurants, behind the approach we take to serving others. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. You do, 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 do. Weekly Specials. note about today's podcast. This was recorded Friday of election week. And well, I think a lot of people are online and service wasn't as good as it normally is. So the audio on today cuts in and out a little bit, but hang in there. It's a really good conversation. My next guest is literally a rock star. He's the lead singer of Young the Giant who've had albums and singles go gold and platinum, no big deal, performed on the stages of Lollapalooza, South by Southwest, Jimmy Kimmel Live. They've toured around the world. The band is celebrating the 10th anniversary of their self-titled album this month. And, well, they also happen to be one of my favorite bands in the world. 
the way that they've worked together in the nearly 14 years that they've been together is to me extraordinarily inspirational. Samir, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I'm so excited you're here. I've always thought that there's a ton of through line music and, and restaurants. Like the idea that it's it's truly a team sport. There's a creative process. We are collectively, I think we're both in the business of serving up joy to people just through different mediums. And this year, I think both industries have faced a reasonable amount of adversity. But this month we're talking about collaboration and just kind of observing how you and the guys work together and how long you've been together. I just think there's a lot that our industry can learn from how you all pursue your industry. But just to level set a little bit, tell me what has your pandemic year looked like so far? <laughs> Honestly, notwithstanding the impact it's had on the world and global economy, as well as probably mental health and things we'll figure out only years from now. For me, selfishly, it's actually been a great time. It's been an, an introspective time, an ability for me to take stock of what's important in my life. The timing of it in some ways couldn't be better and couldn't be worse in that my wife was actually pregnant during the whole course of the pandemic starting in March. And now I have a newborn son who's six weeks old. And Congratulations, so, man. <laughs> thank you. So have a, you know, a 2020 baby and um, that in itself comes on, you know, a necessity to believe in a future. And um, obviously that stuff, you know, and the, as the undercurrent, you know, I'm starting to feel a little bit better about that all, you know, even with that outside of that career wise, it's been also um, an interesting time for us as a band, me as an individual writer and being able to kind of hone in on other things that make us special. We are so dependent on live touring as an industry and we will be the last industry to fully return in some ways uh, it's really frustrating in other ways i couldn't be more proud of how the music industry has taken the responsibility of their fans and the well-being of the fans really really to heart and that you know there really hasn't been any huge massive show gatherings um, it's been kind of like a global allyship in some ways of everyone just agreeing to be responsible, which has been really awesome to see. But it's also allowed us as a band and even the macro, the industry to start rethinking how we monetize things, rethinking how we can continue to release stuff and share it with the world, even when we're not able to tour. So let me, I, I want to jump back a little bit what you're saying, because I think it's been one of the beautiful silver linings of this Forget about professionally, because you know, we're all rediscovering ourselves professionally in the same way that you just started to articulate, but like as individuals and personally, I've mentioned this a few times on this show that a friend of mine is a pastor and he shared with me this prayer that someone in his church uh, said, which is, I pray that the things we're being forced to do today are things that we choose to do tomorrow. And so when you talk about just learning things about yourself, like, what are those things? What do you want to be? How do you want to be different on the other side of this than you were going into it? In a lot of ways, I think it's continuing to want to learn about myself. I, I'm pretty open, vulnerable with the fact that I still am figuring it out. I'd say that most people are. My identity in America, my identity as a father, my identity as a husband are all things that are uh, things I'm currently just trying to figure out on a day to day basis. I think just by the fact of 
seeing how, you know, I haven't been on tour since, you know, a major, major tour since November of last year. And I haven't played a show since March or February. And that's the longest I've ever gone without touring since I started as a band, uh, since I started doing this professionally, which was when I was like 18. So a lot of life has happened since then. And I realized, you know, how much of my life had been spent elsewhere, mentally, physically, just kind of moving forward with the grind and just feeling like, you know, if I hit the next hurdle in my career that I'd be able to figure things out personally in my life, which is obviously a mirage. And and being able to do this, I've been able to see the things in, in my life that, you know, may, maybe were stressors or harmful for me and how I kind of abused those things to be able to continue to do what I was doing. And also just the amount of, you know, the lack of sleep that I had incurred over the course of 12 years is astounding. I think I'm just now starting to catch up, even though now I have a son. So that's kind of going back down again. You're going right back into the deficit yeah, again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like this forced pause has given us the ability to actually create space to think about or pursue things with intention that we didn't have time for, or perhaps we didn't even have the time to know that we needed. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. So let's start with the origin story, because listen, a lot of people in the restaurant business were pursuing a different career and suddenly found themselves pursuing the restaurant business. And it's not that dissimilar to you. You were studying to be a doctor. So what happened? Can you just tell <laughs> tell me about like how you came into this, how you guys got together as a band, all that? Yeah. So music has always been in my life from a very, very young age, just around the family. My grandmother was a professional Indian classical singer and then kind of gave it up to start a family in India. You know, obviously my dad's really passionate about music. My mom always pushed me to be involved in music and throughout the course of, you know, my education as a child, I did have that in my life. And there were many, many things in my life that I really worked hard in. Obviously, you know, being an immigrant, being a son of an Indian immigrants, there is um, that model minority issue. And, you know, notwithstanding, you know, my parents just didn't have the same type of opportunities that they had gotten for me here in America and the amount of sacrifice that they had made uh, to get me to this place. As the firstborn son uh, of this family, I, I felt kind of an obligation in a lot of ways to live up to those expectations. And then at some point, I just kind of internalized those things. And so, you know, I was really, really involved in school um, and academics and in sports. And music was always something for me that was fun and that was effortless. I don't think I ever realized that, you know, I, I knew that I had some talent. I just, I didn't realize that it was something that could actually take me all the way to making a professional career. And if I did, I was probably in denial because in some ways telling your, your parents, so when, when I had just gotten into Stanford, telling them that, you know, I want to drop out of school and, and pursue a career in music was just <laughs> not, not really an option. And also I, I really did love school and I was really passionate about things that I was a human biology major, which was kind of like a neither here nor there interdisciplinary major in, at Stanford. Um, I actually would have come out with a Bachelor of Arts. So it was kind of like sort of a pre-med track, but I always in my heart knew that I didn't want to be just another Indian doctor. I have nothing wrong with obviously there, there should be more doctors in the world. But for me, I just knew it wasn't my path. And 
I was a fiction minor and I also started getting really heavily involved in an acapella group, which is saying post-apartheid music, gospel music in college. And that like really awakened me to, you know, a whole other sense of understanding of my voice. But music was always a thing that somehow just kind of was, it was like a gravitational pull. The band started before I went left for college. It was um, throughout high school. It was actually a big sticking point for me. Uh, and I had the grades, I had the SAT scores, whatever. But, you know, the the college really loved the fact that I was a musician and they liked the music that I was making. So that was cool. And um, they kind of empowered me to do that. So when I was in college, essentially I was spending every other weekend, you know, while other students were you know, like partying and whatever, I would go come back down to LA because we had a manager at the time who was still one of our managers to this day who was like, no, you, you know, you should you know, try and consider to pr pursue this, at least as, you know, a side hustle. And at that time, you know, with technology and all that, it was just not really an option for me to do both. I couldn't. And at a certain point, there was a tipping point. I knew that I was sacrificing a lot of my college experience to try and do this other thing that I loved. And we kind of fell into a certain level of success in between my freshman and sophomore year of college. Uh, we'd recorded an EP in LA. Um, instead of doing a college internship, I had, you know, was just kind of smoking weed with my friends and writing music. And we managed to, you know, finish an EP and release it. And by the time I went back to school, that EP started doing well abroad and got the attention of some labels as well as some management companies. Uh, and by Thanksgiving, there was this sense that, okay, especially at that time, the only way to make it was to go tour. And you know, we were playing LA gigs here and there at the Roxy or whatever on the strip. And it was just that point where I realized I was going to regret it for the rest of my life if I didn't take the opportunity. And so I did. Just Let happened. me ask you real yeah. quick, and I'm sorry to jump in, but no, no worries. So a lot of people, I think even those who have pursued their careers with unreasonable conviction, I think right now are questioning their conviction, perhaps for the first time or perhaps in a more like fundamental way than they have in the past. And I mean, you were given an opportunity, but that's a big decision that you made. And so how much of that was just like, all right, screw it. I guess I'm going to give it a shot. Or how much of it was a really difficult decision? How did you navigate through that? I'd say it was one of the most difficult. I wouldn't call myself uh, an extremely decisive person, but I it took me a long time. I deliberated for a long time. It also helped that my parents really were not into the idea. And as a, as a teenager, you know, you kind of want to rebel against that feeling. Um, I knew that I was standing up for something and I didn't really know the, the power of that until later. But yeah, I mean, it, it was a very difficult decision. Awesome. Okay. So you did it, you went for it and then, and then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, I don't think, I, I think looking back now with more clarity on how many things could have gone wrong, but didn't go wrong. Uh, there was a lot of hard work, talent, but a lot of luck that went into being, getting to the place that we did uh, in the period of time that we did. We left school in the winter or, you know, January of 2009. And by 2011, I was playing the VMAs and you know, I don't think anyone had expected that, not even the label that we signed to. We had very little expectations. There was no bidding war. There was one label who wanted to sign us. We signed a you know pretty prohibitive deal that we're still seeing the effects of today and a five album deal. And we just happened to be a part of a time that was kind of a reawakening for alternative indie rock music in the cultural scene. 
at that moment, the biggest artists in the world were rock bands. And I don't think we've seen that since then. So the timing was just perfect. So what I'd love to, to kind of learn from you, because this whole month, we're trying to encourage people to lean into collaboration, to like embracing the idea of seizing on the collective brain power of everyone on their team and also kind of simultaneously working super hard to hold on to their teams. One thing that you just said is the same manager that you had when you were 18 years old is still one of your managers. And at the risk of asking an obvious question, why is it important to you to hold on to those relationships? I think there's a fine balance, an internal dialogue that must be set if this is the team that will not only get you to where you want to be with your career, but will also take your humanity into account. And that was something that was very important to us. Both of our industries can be relatively toxic at times. There are people who mm-hmm. are toxic in that industry who may have maybe more connections or may be able to get you somewhere. But I think from the very beginning, um, if we had what you would call a sort of business model, it was, you know, we're going to take the slow and steady course. Uh, we're going to build organically and we're not going to rely on some viral thing. And this is before I think even the term viral in regards to the music industry was even used or was the main function of how one made it. But it was important that we had a team that believed in that same collective idea, that believed in our well-being as people um, as much as our professional well-being. And with the band guys, it was just luck, you know, really uh, we have known each other, some of us since elementary school, middle school, high school, we grew up with each other. Um, and we were able to rely on each other during those very, very difficult times when fame or semi-fame can get to one's head, we were able to sp- spread it out evenly. So that was important. So tell me about those relationships, the five of you. I think collaboration is an extraordinary thing. And it's also tension ridden at time, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's so much easier in some ways to just have one person making all the decisions and everyone follows along. There's no arguments, there's no back and forth. So can you just tell me how you guys work together? Like in, in the most fundamental way, mm-hmm. how do you make music? How do you guys write music? How does it work? <laughs> you know, it's changed with every record, but I think the the through line through all of it has been that we need to be in the same headspace. And when we get into that zone, which is becomes more and more difficult as our career progresses and we, as we get older, when we get that is when things really happen and when we become greater than the sum of our individual parts. But it's a very, very difficult and frustrating thing to do. You know, it's a complex dynamic and I think we consider ourselves to be m- much more than friends. We consider ourselves to be brothers. And that comes with its own issues and sometimes every single person has to understand the impact that they have in the band, right? And some sometimes it's, you know, it, it's not only how you bring yourself into the studio, it's how you carry yourself on tour, even on the, not just on the, you know, playing at the forum in LA, but also like, how do you carry yourself in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan in the middle of January mm-hmm. after a six week tour and you're playing six shows a week? Um, how do you carry yourself? How do you treat others? And it's a burden and it, it's a heavy responsibility that we all have to carry because we all, you know, if one person does something, then we all look bad. Right. But in terms of writing, it's something that we are continuously reinventing every time we work on music. 
tell me, you said we all need to get into the same headspace. And that's powerful and important. How do you do that? Is that like an intentional pursuit? Is it something that happens organically? It's, it has to be, at first it has to be an intentional pursuit. It has to be that, at least for that moment, when you're in that room, you care more about the collective good than your own personal stuff. And in the beginning, that was fairly easy because we were 19, we, were, we had no attachments, we were broke, we lived in an apartment together, and we had the same shared experience. We'd spent 24-7 with one another, and we all knew that if we did this, we proved people wrong, that you know we had this same easy goal in mind, right? And then as we found some sort of success and had expectations, we had, had to tackle that. And then when, you know, some of us started getting more serious in our relationships in life and started finally moving out of like a collective band house, um, where we lived in f four different homes together, it became, you know, everyone has their own life, you know, which is great. <laughs> in, a, in a sense, being in a band or being in any group collaborative endeavor is like, uh, this collective feeling of having arrested development in some way, like you have to, <laughs> you have to, you know, kind of have this irrational thing, like, okay, we're going to do this. And, you know, obviously, you know, we all then began to work on our personal lives and have our own personal families and goals. And it became more and more difficult to get into that zone, but every time we've been able to, and I think, the way we also do that is by staying close. Uh, for now, that's relatively easy as well, because even though we all live in different places, we all live like a quarter mile from each other. Francois yeah. is up two blocks up the road. Uh, you know, everyone is, you know, really, really close. We, we just also intentionally last year purchased a band house together to build out into a studio because we wanted to have that collective feeling again of a space that was just for the band and just for us to be able to like act, act like kids again. Hmm. Tension is an inevitability, right, within relationships like those. I think anytime anyone's been working together for any measure of time and they're truly invested in one another and open to the opinions of others, there's tension, right? It's like a marriage and marriage, exactly. like, <laughs> and exactly. you need to work at it. And so tell me, like, how, how do you navigate through tension? I mean, I, I'm like, you guys have been together. We talked about this just before we started, like 16 or so years, somewhere in that range. Mm -hmm. It's a long time, right? Yeah, um, yeah. You guys can probably play no huddle offense now in a way that yeah. most people can't, and that's a, like a priceless thing. But it doesn't come easily. So tell me, when there's tension, how do you navigate through it? When we're on the road, which is inherently stressful, and then we're forced to see each other, and we live with each other in a bus, at some point the tension is going to come out. And each one of us, we all know each other so well that our language or um, our ability to handle open conversation varies amongst each band member. And that language is, you know, unique to each person. And I think we've all learned how to be able to communicate with one another um, and express how we feel honestly. But usually it's a blow up fight or, you know, something like that. And, but even when that happens, you know, we kind of make up the next day. Uh, that's just the nature of things because there's kind of this feeling of necessity that we just need to keep going and uh, we rely on one another. So in some ways it's 
this feeling of necessity, but as, as friends, it's also something that we, we really prize. Tell me in terms of leadership. So I think in my industry, there's probably even more of a structured hierarchy within most teams, right? There is generally one or two bosses, right? And then the other people kind of work for them. And then there are people that work for them, et cetera, et cetera. I think what you organically have, where it's five people on a team, like in it together, pushing to succeed, that is what we're kind of encouraging our industry to embrace right now. Hierarchy aside, like give everyone a seat at the table because it used to be that there was a playbook. As a leader, I knew what the rules were and what defined me as a restaurateur is which of those I decided to break. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no playbook anymore. No one knows what the hell's going on, what direction is up or down. And the fear is that leaders are so used to having all the answers that in the absence of having any, they run away from leading. Mm-hmm. When you're on a team and it's five of you, I would imagine a lot of that is knowing when it's your turn to lead and it's when you're when it's your turn to follow. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I think removing one's ego from something, understanding what one's weaknesses are and what one's strengths are are essentially they're so valuable to a team and not only that but understanding what other people's weaknesses and strengths are. And so I think that took us a little bit of time because you know five five people it's kind of nebulous we're all going through this together at a certain point we all started falling into roles of when each person becomes a leader given the thing that they are best at doing and um you know so there are moments that i am the leader and then there are moments that you know i always say that with every group for any given situation it's actually important to have a slacker at one point because <laughs> even though you even though you might be kind of pissed at that person for a second and be like wait if they were here, it would just add so much, like so many more and one extra other opinion that would just kind of stop the whole process. But that's not, it's not a stagnant thing, right? Like not one person is ever just the slacker all the time. It's kind of, it kind of switches around. Right. And so there's certain things where I'm like, okay, you know, maybe I know that I'm not as passionate about that particular thing. Maybe, you know, for example, like for me, it's like, okay, if you guys want to decide like what merchandise, like this merch design thing, I will let you do that. I'm not going to just weigh on it just because I want to have my voice in there because I have an ego. I'll let you do that, you know, or even within, you know, the music, music part, I realize, oh, okay, maybe I'm not as savvy with this particular, you know, guitar tone thing that you guys are doing forever. I'm just going to let you do that instead of like me trying to uh, push my agenda forward. And once I think we all realize that it's kind of freeing actually, because um, instead of, being required to have all the answers all the time, you can kind of chime in when it makes sense, but also take that break and take that necessary space from what you're doing in order to make a decisive decision later on. I love what you just said. One of the things I've always talked about with my teams is, and this is counterintuitive for a lot of people because I think everyone, well, not everyone, obviously, especially considering the state of our world right now, but a lot of people endeavor to be humble, right? They want to show humility. And one of the things I've always said is like, hey, we need to have the confidence to say out loud what we believe our superpowers are. Like, mm-hmm. what are our strengths? Because if we don't, if we're not able to name them, then the people around us won't know what those things are. And then as a team, we don't know how to lean into one another's superpowers. But you talked about 
acknowledging our weaknesses as well, which by the way, if it's hard to, to name your superpowers, it takes even more vulnerability to name your weaknesses. And so like when you guys are working together, is there, is there like a, a little, like, I don't know, like bonding circle where you're like, Hey, my name is Samir. I'm not good at this. Or like, <laughs> is that just an intuitive thing? Like I I'm always trying to figure out how people apply intention to intuition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's just, you know, over the course of repetition, working in the studio as much as we have now, I think we feel comfortable in all fields of what we do at this point. And we've all grown and learned together to understand what we are each good at, but there's also a healthy bit of competition as well, where, you know, maybe one may aspire to become better at, or as good at something as the other. And that's also important. But yeah, I think it's been an intuitive thing. I don't think it's, uh, I think we all kind of have internalized each other's strengths and weaknesses without really having to verbalize them anymore. So, and I mean, there's a bit of an unfair advantage. You guys have known each other for literally ever, right? (laughs) So when you're talking to a team of people, maybe they've worked together for two years, three years, six months, like, how do you define collaboration and what advice do you have to give people to, I don't know, a shortcut? Like, what's the approach mm-hmm. to give people the courage or the grace or the invitation to put their own ego aside, recognize that they're not always going to be the smartest person in the room, all that? Mm-hmm. I think it's in a lot of ways boiling down the true essence of what the objective is. And finding one that speaks to every single person involved with that endeavor. And I know that can be difficult with different teams and different, you know, hierarchies and pay structures. In some ways we've kept it really easy. Uh, I could say in like an ideal world, everyone just splits everything equally, which is how we do things. And it does hurt the, uh, the net at the end, but it has been a collective thing for us. We all become incentivized to become better at what we do doesn't work for everyone though. But I think really, yeah, boiling down like what our goal is, right? We can't have two different things. We can't be working towards two different goals because oftentimes those lead lead one down different paths. And that's not just a conversation that happens once. It has to happen all the time. It has to be like a constant check-in, constant reminder, even for us as a band. It's easy to get sidetracked with other people's desires and wants. You know, like at the beginning, like I said, our goal was to build slowly and steadily, you know? And at the beginning, we moved up exponentially at that moment, right? And so we thought that that exponential growth was how things were always going to be, right? Mm -hmm. But we realized that our intention to be slow and steady, meaning, you know, for us, the artistic value of what we were doing came first over, let's say, what would have gotten us to the, the top quicker, which would have, you know, probably been you know, doing a bunch of different things differently, you know, maybe have not made as experimental of a second record, maybe have worked with songwriters, maybe have done certain features that uh, we didn't necessarily feel were speaking to us artistically, but that could, you know, maybe get us more notoriety or make us more money. These were things that we chose not to do. And then when we looked back and realized, you know, wow, like we also... We, we had that feeling by the same way, this feeling disappointed that we hadn't gotten this exponential growth. But 
we had to look and reevaluate and say, no, this is exactly what we wanted. This is this is how we had structured things. You can't have both things. You have to make mm-hmm. a compromise at some point. You, if you're going to make choices based on your artistic integrity, that's just the way the world works. You're not you're not going to become you know the biggest pop star in the world or the biggest musician in the world. Every artist I know who has gotten to that point has made a conscious decision to be that, right? At all costs. And maybe indie rock, indie rock is slightly different, but for the most part, all the largest artists in the world had a clear objective that that's what they wanted. And for us, our objective, no, was to to keep the art first. And so, yeah, but it takes, it's a constant thing, even now, you know, where it's like still realizing that we're we're on track with the way we wanted things from the very beginning. You know what I think is so fascinating is we always look to have conversations like this with people who do different things than we do because, yeah, no matter what your walk of life is, you can be inspired by people who do what you do and are just extraordinary at it. And, but there's always so much perspective to be gained by looking outside of your discipline and then finding like things that other people embrace and bring it into your world. But regardless of discipline, you know, I've talked to like extraordinary CEOs of huge businesses and restaurateurs and musicians and all of this stuff. One of the key things is just having a mission statement. That's kind of what you're saying. Like even as a band, maybe you don't articulate it like that, but you're like, Hey, we have a mission statement because until we're all aligned in the spirit of our collective endeavor, it's not possible for us to collaborate on how to achieve it. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and then once you have attached yourself to that mission statement, you obviously should allow for the ability to change and, and pivot if you, if you need to, but it needs to be a collective decision in some way. And when it goes a different way and you don't get everything that you desire because you've chosen to focus on one particular thing, you can't be surprised by that. And so that's, you know, still, you know, a thing for us. Awesome. Okay. Can you just take a moment and talk about, how you've pursued the creative process during a season of social distancing. I'd imagine, I mean, for everyone, it's been harder, right? Like, okay, we have Zoom, you and I are on Zoom right now, that's how most of the stuff is working, but something is inevitably lost in the absence of just being a group of people together in a room. Totally, totally. I mean, we've, as as a band, we've really tried different ways to still be creatively collaborative with one another. And one of the projects that we started on at the beginning of quarantine when we weren't seeing each other at all was a project called Song A Day, uh, which had started experimenting with on the prior record. Actually, I was in uh, Oaxaca with uh, Steven Torres and I just was sitting, I think I had like, I was just sitting there in the evening and I had this epiphany. I was like, oh, this is how we should structure a songwriting experiment. I'd realized that you know, over the course of our careers, each person had become more and more adept at handling engineering, handling other pieces. And when we were all in the room, while that was still the best way to function in a lot of ways, at least interpersonally, we felt like we were stepping on each other's toes. It's like, who's going to play that part? Because we can all play that part. Who's going to, yeah, assume this role in the creative process. Um, And so we had this ability that was actually perfect for quarantine, which was we all have our own home studio setups. And so on a Monday of any given week, each one of us would simultaneously start a project. And we I'd made, you know, a rotation that was set. 
And so by Tuesday morning, each of us would send our idea to the next person. They could open it up fully on project. They could delete anything they wanted. They could add anything they wanted. So that still allowed this level of trust um, that that person is going to see your vision through and not just try and screw it up for the sake of screwing something up. And by the end of the week, we would have five completed. My God. And um, it actually ended up being really, yeah, it ended up being a really fruitful thing. We actually broadcast a couple of the songs on Instagram live. And for us actually it was really creatively freeing because I think, you know, also probably with um, even within your world, when people come into the restaurant and they eat the food, I don't think they realize the amount of prep work, the amount of uh, conscious decision and compromise and like steps along the way that have taken to get the food on the plate. And in music, it's the same way. It's like traditionally, especially within our genre, when you listen to a song, that song has gone through 10 different versions. The song has been uh, produced, you know, some songs we've written in 15 minutes, some songs we've had 27 versions of the song before it even went out onto the record. Um, at a certain point, there's a level of diminishing returns and overthinking. And so there's something really freeing about the fact that, okay, we Monday, we do this. Friday, we have five songs. We choose a song on Saturday. We air the song on Saturday to our fans. So there's no level of overthinking in between. It was completely like freeing, you know, especially being a band that really prides ourselves on making albums and making each album like really, really strong and co cohesive. It was fun to just like kind of be like, okay, no, we're just going to like write songs and see what happens. It's funny. It's almost like the perfect intersection of systemizing creativity in a way that's creatively freeing. And exactly. there's almost, that's almost counterintuitive in a way, but I think that's super cool. And rather than, and by the way, I've seen people react to this season in one of two ways say, well, we can't do what we used to do. I guess we're just sitting back or people are just said, no, screw this. We're going to figure out a way to make it happen. And I think that's a really, really cool way to approach it, man. Thank you. So, okay. Our industries have always had a lot in common. I've always felt like a real kinship to the music industry. There's something about music and restaurants that there, there's just an overlap in a beautiful way. But you said at the beginning of this and you're right. Like, Restaurateurs, we're feeling really bad for ourselves, right? Like we can't reopen our restaurants. But yeah, the entire music industry is, it centers around touring now, right? I mean, that's that's what it is. And you're right, you, that part of the world will return after restaurants return. And so I have two questions. You talked about how it's been kind of inspiring to see the music industry be creative in figuring out how to keep going or how we would articulate how to keep serving people. Mm -hmm. What have you seen that you've been inspired by? What are the, like some of the most ridiculous creative things that you've seen people do? I mean, I'm inspired by what you just said that you guys have been mm -hmm. doing, but what, are, what have you seen other people do that you're like, either that's cool or damn, I wish we had thought of that. Or <laughs> <laughs> There's an artist or a band called Sure Sure. And we took them on tour a year and a half ago during the middle of the mirror master cycle. And they're a group of talented guys. They actually live in a house together. Remind us of ourselves in some ways when we were slightly younger, just living in a house together. And they managed to create this kind of like traveling festival within their house. So they had a concert in the bathroom and they had a concert <laughs> in a bedroom and they had a concert in the kitchen. And it was really creative and fun just to see that. That's been something that's really, really cool. But, you know, also, also I think it just in a lot of ways, you know, to slightly a tangent here, it's, and this comes down to just straight 
you know, business and finances in a lot of ways is like music is a business, right? Like uh, what we do, we still have, it's a company and it's one of the great joys to be able to like never think about that stuff most of the time. But in a lot of ways, I think the artists who have survived in the, the companies, the restaurants that will survive are the, the restaurants who have been smart and who have like not blown their load really early and not tried to go to, to kind of burn through their overhead or burn through their, their money that they have too quickly. And I think as an, as a bandit and as a musician and as anyone successful, it's very, very easy to fall into this style of living or way to do things. And, you know, I know artists who were way like living a lifestyle that was way beyond their pay grade and that haven't been able to keep that extra surplus to be able to have some runway during this time. And that's also obviously comes with its own privilege, right? Like you have to be in a position to do that. I'm truly inspired by those smaller artists who, yeah, like, you know, at least for us, even within the microcosm of live touring, we will be one of the first artists to return because we can play amphitheaters. We can play outdoor venues that have a higher ticket price uh, that people can afford, but is outdoors. Um, whereas, you know, a smaller artist who maybe they, they do club shows or they do, you know, theater shows, they have to somehow figure out another way to survive. And, uh, yeah. there's a whole other you know thing about this new generation now holding on to their masters, which is a whole other uh, part of the business, but that's also helping younger artists to stay afloat at this point. So this conversation, I think it'll come out in, in a couple weeks. We are, this is today's Friday after election Tuesday, the world is crazy. Things I think are actually looking up right now, but we're going into a season of further uncertainty, right? Looks like COVID is gonna get worse for a little while. Anxiety comes with uncertainty, all of this. But I've found that the most successful people in my life are those that always have the capacity to find the reasons to maintain optimism and stay positive and what is giving you hope when you look at your industry or the world or your mm -hmm. band, mm -hmm. what is giving you hope right now? You know, I think it's a relativism, understanding, being grateful for where I've gotten in awe of the, the ability of what I'm able to do. It just, it seems so mind blowing to me now that I was able to make money and a living for like playing music with my friends. That has been something that's great, but also I, I don't know. I've just been kind of hardwired that way. I've always been that way. In some ways, this has showed me some other part of myself. I thought at some point that I'd grown really cynical and jaded, and in some ways I have. But I do have this weird, irrational optimism. And obviously in my life, that also helps that I have a son and I'm hopeful for the future. And even beyond that, I don't know. It's just like this drive to survive. And maybe that's just you know, the way that my, because my parents are immigrants and like what they've had to go through and seeing the hardships that they had to deal with um, that mind, you know, pale in comparison or just being aware of history and, and how life has gotten just so much easier for everyone for the most part that I guess that's kind of what's keeping me going in some way. Even just the maintaining of perspective. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Last question. Most of the people listening to this are in the restaurant business. You and I met through food, and we're, we're talking about collaboration. We're talking about this idea of embracing the people around you 
in times of great adversity. And so if you're leaving people, let's just some insights, some thoughts, some advice. Like, what do you what do you want to leave them with? I don't know. I think in regards to the way the world has worked currently, it's it's easy to be internal. It's easy to feel either bogged down by your loneliness or and on the flip side of that, feel like you have all the answers or have the ability to do things on your own. I think one of the greatest challenges truly, truly is is being able to collaborate. And even though it's it's a shit ton of hard work and um, for the most part, it seems like a thankless thing, the ability to compromise, ability to be greater than the sum of the individual, individual what creates longevity, creates something that can live beyond this current moment. And I do believe that this is just a moment, you know, like it's, it's been a couple of months. Yeah, that's sure. That's, that's great. But you know, there are going to be a few more, but I don't know. And when, what we do, there's a relative, always, there's a relative level of uncertainty. Um, nothing is for certain, right? Like you can be up one day and just down the other. And I think for the first time, the world is united in that uncertainty because there's this illusion that, you know, there's a structure of things and that, that, there are things that are certain because of science or not even science just because of observation. But in a, in a lot of ways, not to get like too crazy out there, we're all just kind of floating in space. And hmm. we in some ways have to embrace the uncertainty in order to, to move forward. And I think once people do that, it's, ex- it's extremely freeing. And I think within our industries, people have already done that. So just apply that to the greater world. Samir, thank you very much. Thank you, Will. Thank you so much for joining us. And a special thanks to the incredibly generous sponsors who give us the resources to not only create this content, but to deliver it to you. Perhaps the greatest gift is that they've given us the opportunity to connect with you here, even during a season when we're unable to connect with you in person. Those are our friends and partners at American Express, at Resi, and at Sam Pellegrino. We appreciate you all so much. That catchy music you hear, that's by our friend Aaron Raytier. He's amazing. Check him out. And to the team at the Welcome Conference, who's been working so hard this year. Obviously, Anthony Rudolph and Brian Canlis, who you see alongside me on stage. But then Aaron Ginsberg, who's been running the show with a ton of support by Sandra DiCapua. There's a lot to be thankful for, even during a time that feels so challenging. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And if you want to check up on us and see what we're up to, go to welcomeconference.org. It's the weekly special. You do, 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 do. Weekly special. Special. The weekly special. <laughs>